0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to effectively set healthy boundaries, getting tips for crafting our best possible wardrobes, or figuring out how to improve our concentration and strengthen our willpower. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. This episode will literally make you smarter. No, actually, it is all about how when we're thinking with just our brains, we're actually massively limiting our minds, and it has a ton of tricks on how to think outside of our brains to be more creative, better at problem solving, a better communicator, and more. I am so excited to welcome Annie Murphy Paul to the podcast. Annie is an acclaimed science writer whose work has appeared in publications like the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American, Time Magazine, among many others. She is a graduate of Yale University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and she served as a lecturer and advisor at Yale. And her TED Talk on what we learn before we're born has been viewed by more than 2.8 million people. Her latest book, The Extended Mind, is Amazing and dives deeper into all of the things that we talk about on this episode. And we are going to get into so much cool stuff, including why we're setting students up to fail, why you shouldn't think of your brain as a muscle or a computer, a trick to completely change how you experience stress, sadness, and anxiety, one easy way to instantly think faster a practice to help you figure out exactly when you should trust your gut. This was so interesting. I've always wondered this as somebody who struggles with anxiety when something is anxiety and when something is intuition. And this was a technical, legitimate, very pragmatic practice that you can use to differentiate between those things and know when you should trust your gut, which is so cool. We get into the workout that's been shown to produce really high levels of creativity, Why you should lean into fidgeting, the secret to massively increasing your memory, the one thing we should all do daily to recharge our brains, how to set up your environment to make you think better, a daily practice to clean out your mind so it can focus on the things that matter, and so much more. Annie and I would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening to the episode, so definitely screenshot and tag us both on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and she is at Annie Murphy Paul. If something really resonates with you from this conversation, please share it with a friend, a family member, a coworker, whomever, so that we can all get smarter. And as Annie says, we can stop blaming ourselves for not getting the results that we want. The problem isn't us. It's just that we're literally not accessing our entire minds. As always, thank you so much for continuing to share the podcast and help me grow this wonderful community. I see you. I appreciate you so, so much. Quickly, before we go, I would be remiss to not urge you to grab your healthy ConvoCo decks ASAP so you can get them in your hands in time for holiday gifting. We launched three brand new games. We have our raunchier together game, which is R-rated, and it makes any dinner party or couples night in or bachelorette or group trip way more fun. We have our working together game, which is meant for everything from Zoom meetings to mentorship sessions to happier happy hours. And we have our we're all in this together deck, which is so unique. It's a journaling prompt deck that is actually designed to change the direction of your life. It helps you create the life of your dreams. It is absolutely amazing. I highly recommend stocking up before they sell out. Just head to healthycombo.co to get your hands on them. Again, that is healthycombo.co. All right, let's get right into it with Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie, I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm so excited to talk about all things expanding and enhancing the capacity of our
1: mind. I'm happy to
0: be here, Liz. So let's just dive in. We think of thinking as happening largely, if not primarily, in the brain, but you argue that that is not the case. So where then does thinking happen?
1: It is a little bit of a wacky idea, and I should say it's not my idea. I borrowed it from philosophy, two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers came up with the idea of what they called the extended mind. And they wrote about this in an article in a philosophy journal that appeared in 1998. And the very first line of that article really grabbed me, which is, doesn't often happen with a really technical or abstruse philosophy article, but their first line was, where does the mind end and the rest of the world begin?" And that grabbed me because it would seem to have an obvious or a conventional answer, which is, well, the mind stops at the skull, right? And you know everything else is outside the mind. But Clark and Chalmers were saying, no, actually, the mind extends beyond the skull into the gestures and sensations and movements of our bodies and into our physical surroundings and into our relationships with other people and into our tools and our devices. And their example, this was 1998. So like before the smartphone, but if you use a notebook to basically be your memory, your supplemental memory, because you write down things that otherwise you would forget, or if you work out a math problem in your notebook, or if you use a notebook to sort of brainstorm and write down ideas that might be different than the ones that you would come up with in your own head, they were saying, why isn't that notebook part of your mind? Why can't you consider that conversation you have with a brilliant friend part of your mind? You know, If you would have ideas talking to them that you would never have on your own, what about when you go outside and you take a walk and you think different thoughts than when you're sitting at your desk? Why do we assume that the only place thinking happens is in our brains? It's actually spread out across all these other settings.
0: With all of that said, what do you think of as the limits of constraining the notion of thinking to your brain?
1: Andy Clark, the philosopher that I mentioned, talks about how we're a very neurocentric society, a very brain-centric society. And you can really see that in education, for example, where when we ask students to take tests, they're purposely not allowed to move around, not allowed to talk to their neighbor, not allowed to bring in the resources that they would actually use to solve a problem in the real world. And so what we're saying when we test students in that way is that the only thing that matters is what's in your head, like what is in that lump of stuff that's inside your skull, when really, in the real world, we use all these outside-the-brain resources to solve problems. And we might be able to think better. In fact, my book argues that we can think much better if we include all of those outside-the-brain resources in our thinking and approach it as a question of how do we enhance those resources enrich them, get better at using them instead of thinking that it all has to happen inside the head.
0: I love the part of the book too, where you were like, we can blame ourselves and say, oh, we're not smart enough, but actually we're just not tapping into the full potential of what our mind can offer us.
1: And part of the fact that we are a neurocentric or a brain-centric society is that we kind of fetishize the brain. We kind of like worship it in a way And we keep hearing about how the brain is the most complex object in the universe. It's so amazing. It's so incredible. And it is all those things. But that kind of talk also leads a lot of us to feel like, oh, God, I guess I got a bum one, you know, because my brain forgets things all the time. My brain doesn't understand things. Sometimes my brain has a hard time learning things sometimes. But what the theory of the extended mind says is that, no, actually, those are universal limitations of the human brain, of the fact that it evolved to do things that are very different from what we expect it to do today. And the way to close the gap between what we expect our brains to do and what the biological brain on its own is actually able to do is to bring in all these outside the brain resources and make the best use of those resources to kind of create a combination system that is better than either one would be alone.
0: And you don't think it's helpful, right, to think of the brain as the commonly heard metaphors, like your brain is a computer or your brain is a muscle and you need to exercise it and make it stronger.
1: Yeah, those are two really common metaphors. The brain as computer metaphor, I think, is very pervasive. We run into it all the time. It's embedded in our language, like when we talk about our mental bandwidth or our memory. But the reason it's flawed is that a brain is actually very different from a computer. Obviously, it's a biological organ. It's an evolved organ. It's embedded in a body. It's very sensitive to context. It's highly social. All of these things that computers aren't. So when we equate our brains to computers, what we end up thinking is that our brain is kind of like a faulty computer. Like our brains are machines that just don't work quite as well as computers, which is really giving our brains a short shrift because our brains can do all kinds of amazing things. We just need to treat them differently than we treat a computer in the sense that for a computer, it's information in, process that information, information out. Whereas we need to think about a whole range of things like the context in which we're thinking, the people that we're thinking with, the way that our bodies feel when we're doing our thinking, all these things that don't come into play when we're equating The brain with a computer.
0: Like a computer is not going to work different if you have it in the bedroom or the living room or on the patio. Right. What's the problem with thinking of our brains as a muscle that you would want to strengthen?
1: That really emerges out of what some of your listeners may know as the growth mindset. This idea that intelligence is something that we can grow and build by exercising our brain as if it's a muscle. And that's a very empowering message. It's one that a lot of us have benefited from. But I think it is limited in the sense that it, again, focuses on the brain. It's very neurocentric. It's saying, exercise your brain to get smarter. It doesn't really have a lot to say about bring in outside the brain resources to get smarter. So what that can leave us with is the sense that like to get this difficult or challenging problem solved, to get the work done, I just need to sit here, And exercise my brain and work my brain until I'm exhausted, which is kind of a prescription for frustration when really we could be lightening the load on our brain by bringing in resources from outside our heads.
0: So let's talk about some of those outside resources. I would love to start with the body. What are some ways that we can move or otherwise use our physical body to expand our thinking powers?
1: Well, you're doing one right now, Liz, which is gesturing, or when you were asking that question, you were moving your <laughs> hands around, which is something that humans do naturally. And in fact, linguists think that gesture was probably our first language before we even were able, as a species, to use spoken language to communicate. We probably communicated through gestures, and we still communicate through gestures. What's interesting from an extended mind point of view is that gesture is not just about communicating to other people, we're actually assisting and enhancing our own thinking with our gestures. There's these amazing experiments that show that our gestures are a few milliseconds ahead of our verbal expression and even our conscious thought in terms of what we're about to say. It shows up first in our hands and our gestures. And especially when we don't quite grasp something, when we are just about to understand something or get something, it often shows up first in our gestures. And we can actually read off of our own gestures, some information that will help us find the right words or locate the right concepts. So our hands often sort of know more than our conscious minds do, which is kind of mind blowing to think about.
0: Can we cheat that then? Like if we want to Mm -hmm. sound smarter, or if we want to think through a problem, Mm -hmm. can we just sit there and like gesture wildly?
1: Yeah, actually, in educational psychology, there's a notion that we want to get students gesturing as much as possible. And one way to do that is to put them in front of an audience, in front of the class, and have them explain something. That's such a difficult thing to do on the spur of the moment that we offload some of that mental work onto our hands. And it turns out that the more we gesture, the deeper our understanding of a concept. So I think that we can apply that to ourselves as workers and thinkers and creators We want to allow ourselves to gesture as much as possible. A lot of times, gesturing is looked down upon as something that's sort of gauche or distracting. And there's an idea that you should be more controlled and you shouldn't be waving your hands around like crazy. But in fact, we want to give ourselves the freedom to gesture as as freely as possible.
0: And then you talk about tuning into your body as a really important way of expanding your powers of thought. Can you speak to
1: that? That's a capacity that scientists call interoception. And that refers to the fact that just like we have sensors that collect information from the outside, we smell, we see, we hear through these sensors located on the outside of our body. On the inside of our body, we also have sensors that are picking up a constant flow of information from inside our bodies. And that's sending it up to our brains and There's so much stimuli, so much going on outside ourselves that's always grabbing for our attention that we often forget to tune into that quieter, subtler flow of information from inside. But it's always there and we can tune into it if we take the time. In the book, I recommend doing an exercise known as the body scan, which some of your listeners may have experienced if they've done mindfulness meditation and that just means bringing open minded, curious, non judgmental attention to whatever's going on in your body. And I find if I do that just in an informal way, I don't have to be sitting on a meditation cushion or anything, but just tune in a couple of times a day to what's going on inside. The body actually carries a lot of information that is otherwise not really accessible to our conscious minds. Those little signs and cues from inside the body tell us what to pay attention to, what to avoid, what to approach. But all of that is a really rich source of information that we're overlooking if we're not in touch with what's going on inside our body.
0: What do those cues look like? Like, are we talking about like tingly hands or like something happening in our stomach or what should we be actually looking out for?
1: I report in the book about a study that looked at financial traders on a trading floor in London. And in that case, they were looking at the traders' abilities to sense when their hearts were beating. Some people are able to tune in to their heartbeat and to know when their hearts are beating. Other people are sort of more distant from that, and they don't have an awareness of their hearts beating. But in this case, the scientists were using awareness of heartbeat as a kind of proxy for general awareness of what's going on inside one's body. And what they found was that financial traders with the longest tenure in the job and the most successful, the most profitable, were those who were best able to tune into their bodies and to know when their hearts were beating. In that case, heartbeat was standing in as a kind of proxy for general bodily awareness. But those signals might be things like a tightness in your chest or butterflies in your stomach or shortness of breath. It's a very individual thing. And so each person has to kind of get to know what their own personal pattern of reactions is. Taking care of your health isn't always easy,
0: but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balanced meals over here, but nobody is perfect, so AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Lizmoody. That's drinkag1.com slash Lizmoody. Check it out. When Zach and I started Healthy ConvoCo, we needed to find the easiest way to get conversation cards from our warehouse onto our website and into your hands. I thought it was going to be the hardest part of starting a business, but it wound up being one of the easiest because we just used Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling gorgeous ceramics to sip morning tea from or beautiful journals to write prompts from the we're all in this together deck in, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I know as a consumer, I'm way more likely to buy when a website has Shopify. It has all of my information saved, so checkout becomes a one-click situation, even on small business sites, which makes me so happy because I love shopping small. But it's not just small. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind allbirds, rothys, and brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/lizm all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Liz M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Liz M. It's so interesting because I feel like we're taught societally to intentionally ignore those things. Like I'm somebody who has anxiety. I have a tightness in my chest often, and I'm taught to dismiss that, ignore it, work through it, push through it. And I think that makes the unlearning process of like, no, no, that matters. And that's actually a way of expanding your thinking and expanding your mind power a lot harder.
1: You're absolutely right about those messages that we get from society, especially in terms of doing intellectual or academic or knowledge work. The idea is you have to power through all those bodily sensations you might be feeling. This is back to the brain as muscle metaphor, kind of push on through and ignore all those signals from your body when really those signals from your body are carrying so much information, so much knowledge, so much experience. And so we really have to kind of unlearn, as you say, what society has been teaching us all this time.
0: Is there a way of knowing when a sensation is something that you should listen to and give credence to and when it is anxiety or it is something that you should in fact push through and listen to the maybe more logical, conscious part of your mind?
1: That's a great question because, in fact, with anxiety and with panic attacks in particular, it can be the case that paying too much attention to those interoceptive signals can send us into a kind of upward spiral of anxiety. I still don't think in that case, going on the research, that ignoring or suppressing or pushing aside those feelings is the right approach, though. That kind of curious, maybe slightly detached or observing kind of mode can be more helpful along with what is known as introceptive exposure therapy, which is basically exposing yourself to what you're afraid of in small doses, paying attention to what happens to your body, being in a situation where you can pull back if it gets too scary or too intense, and learning over time that actually you can handle whatever that frightening thing is. And those signals from your body are there to help you. They don't mean that disaster is imminent.
0: I also love the idea that you talked about in the book of using an interoceptive journal to help with decision making. Can you share that? That idea,
1: again, comes from the world of finance and investing because, as you suggested earlier, Liz, it's not as if our interoceptive sensations, our intuitions more generally, are always on target. They're not. They're just one more source of information that we want to be paying attention to. And so, one way to track whether your interoceptive sensations are leading you in the right direction is to make a note of what you're feeling when you're contemplating a certain decision or choice, You know how you're feeling on the inside. And then go ahead and make that choice, whether it's picking a stock or making a decision at work. And then after you've recorded a number of incidents like that, you can go back and say, well, how did I feel when I made that decision that actually turned out really well? Or how was I feeling when I made that decision that actually was the wrong decision? And we can see how our body has been steering us through these different choices.
0: I feel like intuition has been often positioned as like the opposite of science. It's been like dismissed as being like woo-woo or just not grounded in research. And you're saying, no, the science actually supports leaning into and trusting our intuition.
1: I think it's been a really interesting development within psychology that psychologists are now giving more respect to what they call the non-conscious mind. And so I'm not talking here about the Freudian unconscious, where we repress all the stuff that we don't want to deal with. It's more referring to the fact that our conscious minds are really only a small part of all the mental operations that are going on, because there's so much information that we're taking in as we go through our days that we couldn't possibly be aware of it all. And yet, On some level, our non conscious minds are taking it in and noting patterns and making connections that we can make use of. So then the question becomes well, if our non conscious minds are storing all this information, it's non conscious. How do we get access to it? And the answer is that's where the body comes in. I think of them as like a little tap on your shoulder or a little tug on your sleeve when you feel a little shiver of excitement, or maybe it's fear, or you feel that your hands are getting a little sweaty, you can pay attention to those physical manifestations or those physical embodiments of what you know on some deeper level, deeper than consciousness.
0: And then you also talk about how we can manipulate those a little bit. I thought that the reappraising concept was fascinating. I love anything that's going to help me with my anxiety. I love anything that's going to help me reframe stress. So can you talk to us about what reappraising nervousness as excitement and stress as coping might look like?
1: I love this too. And I have to say I use this technique that we're going to be talking about and it really has worked for me. The reappraisal takes off from the fact that all of our emotions are built from the basic building blocks of our physical sensations. So if you are about to get on a roller coaster, your heart might be pounding, your palms might be sweating, you might have butterflies in your stomach, but you might feel exactly those same internal sensations, bodily sensations, but construct them into an entirely different emotion if say you're about to give a speech and your body responds the same way. In both cases, it's sort of preparing you to take on a challenge or a threat, but if we interpret our bodily sensations as, oh my God, I'm so nervous, I'm so scared, this is not gonna go well, this is gonna be a total flop, then it can get into one of those anxiety spirals that we were talking about. Whereas if you tell yourself, if you reappraise that emotion, if you reinterpret it and say, I'm so excited, I am so excited to get out there and share my message with people, it sounds like it would be kind of a stretch if what you're really feeling is nervous. But in fact, Because the bodily sensations are the same, it's actually pretty plausible. Because what doesn't work is if you were to say to yourself, and many of us do this calm down, just calm down. It's not a big deal. Calm down, you know. But your body knows, your body knows there's something going on. There's a big deal. There's a big event coming up. It's preparing you for that. If we can get down to that ground level and say, well, these are the things I'm feeling that sounds a lot like excitement. You know, I'm really pretty psyched about this. And I've done this before giving talks and you actually can kind of get into that mode of like, yeah, I'm really excited. You know, it actually really works.
0: And that works because excitement kind of maps with nervousness, right? Like the bodily sensations are similar. What other things map
1: together? Like what other things can you kind of trick yourself in that same way? Well, I think the emotion of sadness can be a very painful emotion obviously but it can also be very poignant you know it, it can be filled with gratitude or filled with meaning or nostalgia some of us seek out sad music on purpose because there's something beautiful about feeling sad if we construe it in the sense of wow this thing is so meaningful to me maybe it's not in my life anymore but I really enjoy thinking about it as opposed to turning it into something that's so dark and negative. Again, the bodily sensations might be the same, but the spin that you put on it is different.
0: And then you talked about in the book, stress and coping kind of mapping together. Can you speak to that? Because I feel like I'm so stressed is something we all say and hear all day long every day.
1: This is actually something that has also really become a part of the way that I approach stressful situations. If we're facing a stressful situation, we can think of it in one of two ways. Either it's a threat or it's a challenge. And really what makes the difference between those two things, they could really even be this very same thing, the very same situation. It's a matter of whether we feel that we have the resources to meet that challenge. If we feel that we have the resources, internal and external, to meet that challenge, then it's actually activating. It's energizing. It's like, I can do this. I can cope with this, or even I can surmount this, I can triumph over this. Whereas if we're feeling like we don't have the resources internal or external to take on this stressful situation, it starts to feel threatening. Like I can't handle this. I'm not up to this. You know, again, it's like the same situation, but appraised in a different way. And if we can turn our attention to thinking, well, what are the resources I have to cope with this? I do have this knowledge, or I have this kind of character strength, or I have these external resources. I have these friends I can call on, or I have this comfortable place that I can feel good that I'm here on my home turf. Or Thinking in terms of augmenting and highlighting those resources can help you treat a stressor more like a challenge and less like a threat.
0: And is a lot of this just about self-talk? Basically, it's the language you're using in your brain to think about these things?
1: Yeah. The word that psychologists use is reframing. Reappraisal is another one, but I like the word reframing because it's like the situation is the same. You're just putting a different frame on it, but that can make an enormous difference. Sometimes the reframe can be as taking a step back and feeling more distant from it we can think about how will I think about this five years from now? And you can kind of see that actually it's not really that big a deal. Or you can try to reframe it as an opportunity for growth. Like, you know what, this is really hard for me, but I think I'm going to come out of this a stronger person. So it can sound a little bit Pollyanna-ish, but really the way we think about things has such a powerful impact on how they feel to us. So I encourage people to try reframing.
0: Is it okay if you don't believe it? If you're like, I'm just excited about this speech, and then you have this little voice in your head that's like, no, no, you're actually really scared, but you're like,
1: I am just excited. Like, does it still work? Something I've learned from the psychology research is it can be helpful to take a two-step approach. First is acceptance, because as you're suggesting, Liz, you really don't want to be trying to fool yourself or tell yourself some story that you really don't believe. You know, So you could say, you know, this is really hard. I'm really struggling. This is really a tough time for me. And then say, but is there a way that I could sort of think about it in a different way so that it has a slightly different meaning for me? It's like you have to go through that acceptance step first before you jump to, oh, but really this is a great thing.
0: That makes sense. So that's how we're interpreting what happens in our body differently. How can we change what we're actually doing with our body? I would love to talk about movement and how we can use movement to enhance the power of our thinking.
1: In the extended mind, I talk about three different kinds of movement. One is low intensity movement, which is just the kind of little movements that we might make if we're, say, working at a standing desk instead of sitting. Sitting is really so deadly. We know that it's not good for our health, but it's also not great for our thinking processes because sitting down and being very still sends a message to our brains that. We're at rest, you know, and how many of us have not sort of had moments where we kind of are nodding off, you know, in front of the computer, because being at rest is really a diametrically opposed state to the kind of alert and energized state that we want to be in to do our best thinking. So it actually helps to move even just a little bit as you're trying to do your thinking. I like to pace when I'm talking on the phone, for example, I feel like I think better or when I'm trying to work out a problem. And then there's medium intensity movement, which might be a really brisk walk that gets the blood pumping, gets the blood flowing to the brain. There's also a really interesting effect whereby our brain understands things through metaphors. And if you think about what metaphors we use when we're not making progress, we talk about, I'm stuck, I'm in a rut. We have these metaphors that suggests kind of stasis and not moving, whereas when things are going well, we say, I'm on a roll, you know, the ideas are flowing. So if we can move our bodies in a way that invokes a metaphor that is associated in our minds with creativity or progress or new insight, new vistas, we start moving, and the brain follows suit. If we can move our bodies and feel like we're making progress through the world, we're taking steps forward, we're seeing new things, that stimulates the creative mindset. And then finally, high intensity movement, which is not for everybody. But when people run at a very fast pace for a sustained amount of time, and people will talk about this who are serious runners or athletes, the brain is so consumed with the demands of that kind of high intensity exercise, that basically the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that Judges and criticizes and also plans and does those sort of higher level mental activities, it dials down its activity because there's so much going on in terms of just controlling the body and its movements. And that is the state with the prefrontal cortex that is also shared by things like when we dream or when we're having a drug trip, you know, because that's when ideas and associations can kind of collide and combine in really creative ways. So it may be that if you need a creative inspiration, what you need to do is really just go out there and like, really exhaust yourself to the point where you're not thinking in that very highly cerebral, judgmental kind of way. And that is a state of mind that can produce really high levels of creativity.
0: Is there a threshold for that? Like, would any sort of high intensity workout be Prescribed for this type of creative thinking that we're trying to induce?
1: It needs to be high intensity activity sustained over a significant period of time. In the book, I think I have the more exact kind of prescription that you're asking for, but it can't just be a brisk walk. It needs to be something where almost all your mental resources are devoted to just kind of keeping one foot going after the other. And that will put you in that state we're talking about.
0: And then, towards the point of the low intensity movement, Is the research there Mm -hmm. persuasive enough that you would say everybody should have a standing desk or a treadmill desk where they're doing the majority of their work?
1: Well, I don't like to be too prescriptive in the sense that people have to find out what works for them, you know, but certainly in the case of education, I think it's kind of crazy that we expect kids who are naturally inclined to move and who need to move I was going to say squirmy. They're naturally squirmy. Squirmy, (laughs) yeah, that we expect them to sit quietly at desks. One thing I write about in The Extended Mind is that it actually takes quite a lot of mental resources to inhibit the urge to move because what's natural to us is to always be kind of moving a little bit and all the more so for children. And so we actually have to devote some measure of mental bandwidth just to keeping ourselves still, whereas if we have permission to move, and this is why I'm a big fan of gesturing, but also fidgeting, which, you know, again, is something that for whatever reason, our culture looks down upon. But when we fidget, it's actually this very finely modulated way of adjusting our own arousal level. If we fidget, it might keep us awake during a boring meeting, or if we're playing with some kind of object on our desk, that might sort of put us in a more creative frame of mind. There's research on fidget objects in the book that I write about, where some people have like a whole almost like array of fidget objects to induce different kinds of mental states. And I love that idea, almost like a wardrobe of fidget objects. And I would love to see us give ourselves more permission to fidget, to doodle, to gesture, and not feel like those things are somehow anti-intellectual. They're actually enhancing our thinking. Do you have a standing desk or walking desk? I'll be honest, I actually like to write in my bed. (laughs) I mean, I have a desk and I'm looking at it over there, but I very rarely use it. And this actually speaks to another thing that's covered in the book, which is the importance of place. And to me, a couch or a bed is like a really safe, supportive kind of space. Somehow when I'm at a desk, it feels like, okay, you're on the clock now. Whereas, if I'm on my bed or on a couch and my cat is next to me and I have my cup of tea, I'm like, I'm enjoying myself. Whatever I'm doing right now, this is just play. This is fun, you know? And so that's how writing happens for me.
0: <laughs> Bioindividuality. I love it. We'll get into place and environment in a second, but I would love to just touch on the role that movement plays in our memory. Can you speak
1: to that? One of my favorite experiments that I report on in the book is about. Actors and how they remember just pages and pages of their script. And I think a lot of us have wondered, how do they do that? And in fact, research has shown that actors remember their lines with incredible accuracy, like 99% plus accuracy. And they often retain their memory of those lines for months and even years after a play has wrapped up. And researchers have looked into how is it that actors are able to do this? And it's not that they have super memories or that they're gifted in some way. It's that they always tie their memory of a line to a specific movement that they're engaging in when they're acting it out on stage. And many actors told the researchers who were doing this work that, they never try to learn their lines until a play has been blocked, meaning all the movements have been worked out. Because in their minds, the words that they say and the movements of their bodies become joined and unified. So it's almost like by moving, they evoke the words in their minds. And by saying the words, they know what movements to make. And I think we all could take a page from actors and remember that our body is this resource that we have with us all the time. It's very convenient. If we are ourselves preparing to give a speech, for example, we all practice our words in front of a mirror, or many of us do when we have a speech to give, but how about practicing your gestures as well and building those into your speech just as much and being just as thoughtful about the gestures and the movements of your body as you are about how you say the words. You'll
0: get like a double hit kind of, right? Because you'll get the thinking enhancement Mm -hmm. powers of the gesturing, but then you'll get the thinking enhancement powers of tying the gesture to the specific words and the memory
1: enhancement that comes with that. Exactly. And you could even say you get a triple hit because research has shown that the communicative function of gesture makes it so that points that you make with a gesture are going to be remembered much better by your audience than points that you make that don't have a gesture to go along with them.
0: Triple hit. Amazing. Let's talk about environment for a second. You mentioned that environment obviously has such a huge impact on our thinking. What are some ways that our environment is impacting how we're thinking?
1: One of the most powerful environments that we have available to us for thinking is nature. And it makes sense when you think about how human beings evolved. You know, this world we live in now where we're inside buildings or inside our cars, 95% plus of the time and that isn't a very unusual situation from an evolutionary point of view we actually evolved our species evolved outside so it's the case that the kind of information that we find outside in terms of trees clouds greenery all those kinds of stimuli are very easy for our minds to process they take very little effort for our brains to process and for that reason it's very Soothing and relaxing to spend time outside. It's a very different kind of attention that we pay when we're outside, as opposed to the kind of attention we have to pay when we're reading little words on a piece of paper or focusing on our screens. That's a really hard edged, intense kind of attention. Whereas when we go outside, our attention is drawn here and drawn there, but in a very effortless kind of way. And everything is sort of interesting and pleasant, but not in a hard edged or intense way. This branch of research is known as attention restoration theory, which has found that our attentional resources get drained by doing this kind of hard edged, focused work that I'm talking about that is, makes up most of our work if we are knowledge workers of one kind or another. Whereas going outside actually replenishes our attentional resources. It's kind of like filling the tank, you know? And I find that we spend so much time thinking about how we direct our attention or how our attention is being distributed or distracted. So we think about the demands on our attention, but we don't really think about the supply side. Like, well, where am I refreshing and replenishing my attention? Where is that being renewed? And the easiest and most effective way to refill that attentional tank is to spend some time outside.
0: How much nature are we talking about? Like, if we have a few trees on the side of our sidewalk in our neighborhood, is that
1: cool? Or do we need like a full on park? Do we need a forest? It turns out, fortunately, that it doesn't have to be beautiful nature. There's an interesting line of research that shows that if you can get out into the wilderness, there's something special happens after about three days in the wilderness. And that's partly about that intense exposure to nature. And it's probably also about getting away from your devices, which (laughs) I think we kind of have to go into the wilderness to do basically. But the benefits of attention restoration can come from just taking a walk around your block, even if you live on a city block, or even looking out the window. I have a big tree that's right outside my own window. And there's a term in the research known as soft fascination. And I always think of that when my mind is just sort of wandering as I look at the leaves because there's a really soft kind of diffuse kind of attention that is evoked by nature. And that can even be the view outside of a window.
0: And is there a minimum amount of time we need to experience nature to have these effects? Like I know that you talked about micro restorative experiences, which I think is a really interesting concept.
1: Yeah. And that research suggested that some of the benefits of attention restoration happen just after 40 seconds of looking out the window and taking that break. I mean, it is a dose dependent effect. So the more the better. But if all you have time for is to take a moment to look outside, and just sort of let your attention soften that way, I think that can make a difference into itself.
0: And then there were a few other things I feel like that you talked about that enhance the nature experience. Like I feel like taking your smartphone kind of ruined it. Was that right?
1: Yeah, all those benefits of attention restoration that we've been talking about are basically eliminated if you bring your device out with you. So leave that behind when you go outside.
0: Is there anything else we should be doing to enhance the benefits of this nature walk or nature experience?
1: Well, we were talking a moment ago, Liz, about getting a sort of triple threat from our gestures. And something a lot of us did during the pandemic was start taking walks with friends outside, because that was the only way we could meet up with people. And when you think about it, you're getting three benefits right there, you're outside, you're getting physical movement. And we haven't talked about this yet. But you're also getting the social benefits of mind extension with other people. So that's like just a really great way to spend your time.
0: There is so much incredible science behind red light therapy. There's research going all the way back to 1903 that won a Danish physician a Nobel Prize for showing that exposure to concentrated red light accelerated physical healing. And research from NASA has shown that it boosts the production of growth factor proteins and collagen, among many other incredible things. I am obsessed with red light therapy. It is so science-supported, and I've personally seen huge, huge benefits. I use Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device, which is a red light panel, so I'm not limiting its benefits to my face. I feel like the masks are so popular right now, but I would like to expose my entire body to the red light. That way, it helps with not only my skin, my collagen production, but also increasing energy, decreasing pain, repairing cellular damage, improving mental health and cognitive function, and so much more. You are not spending that much more money to get a panel versus a mask, but you get a much more versatile device with way more powerful effects. Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device gives you professional-grade equipment straight at your home for the best price that I have seen anywhere. You can stand your Max panel on the floor on any flat surface, or you can hang it on the back of a door. It is really lightweight, and it is so easily stored away in the closet when you are done using it for the day. You only need 10 to 20 minutes, so Zach and I actually meditate in front of it naked. Uh, but there's lots of ways that you can have it, stack it into your routine, so you do whatever sounds good to you. Check out Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device now on bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. Bond Charge products are all HSA, FSA eligible, giving you tax-free savings of up to 40%. And for a limited time on top of that, my listeners will get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. That is B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You will also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer that is BondCharge.com with promo code LizMoody to get 15% off. Money was such a source of anxiety for me for a long time. I'm always talking about building good, healthy habits, but I didn't have any when it came to financial wellness. Once I started getting educated about my money, I began to feel empowered about it, and pretty soon I was like, how did I let this cause me so much anxiety for so long? If you are struggling just like I was, you need to check out YNAB. YNAB is an app that teaches a set of simple money habits to help you spend, save, and give without guilt or second-guessing. It's one of the apps that experts I talk to recommend over and over because it's grounded in techniques that you won't see anywhere else that actually work. You start off by learning four simple core habits that are actually genius and have completely changed the way that I think about money. And then it guides you through saving so you are never caught off guard by a surprise expense again so you feel safe and secure with money. But maybe more importantly, it also helps you fit the things that you love into your spending plan so that you know you have the money for that bachelorette party or that weekend getaway that you've been dreaming of. Also, and I love this, you can add up to six users to one account. So if you manage money as roommates or with your partner, it has got you covered. It has incredibly high ratings on all platforms and has become a huge cult hit because it's helped millions of people actually build the financial life of their dreams, even people who truly thought it was impossible. Check out YNAB and learn the habits with a 1 month free trial, no credit card required at www.ynab.com/lizmoody. You'll get a month completely free and be able to see for yourself what a big difference it makes. I promise you're going to get back way more than you spend. That's www.ynab.com/lizmoody. It's so interesting because it kind of flips what we think of as productivity on its head. Like instead of kind of sitting and trying to noodle through a problem, actually you should close your computer, get away from your device, take a walk, and that will get you to the place you want to go faster.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's really compelling research on what psychologists call incubation, which is... The fact that, again, back to this idea of the non-conscious mind, even when we're not consciously thinking about a problem, our non-conscious mind will continue to puzzle on it, but you need to do something different. You're not giving your non-conscious mind a chance to, as you say, noodle on a problem if you're maintaining this really rigid focus. This is exactly why most people will tell you that they get good ideas in the shower or when they're taking a walk or taking a bike ride because that's what's known as the default network in the brain takes over and we get these more free-flowing associative kind of thoughts. And that's where a lot of our best ideas are going to come.
0: Is there anything we can do to make our indoor environments more conducive to thinking, since like you said, we have to spend 95% of our time inside?
1: Absolutely. I really love the research on what's known as evocative objects. And when researchers talk about that, they mean that Material objects really can hold a lot of meaning for us. And if we strategically or very thoughtfully and intentionally place those objects in the area where we do our thinking, they can really prime us with the role that we want to be playing. And evocative objects come in two different kinds. One is cues of identity, like cues of who you are, who you want to be, who you're aspiring to be, maybe a reminder of yourself as an artist or a creator. And then also, cues of belonging, which are reminders of valued groups to which you belong. So if you can surround yourself with reminders that you belong to a group of musicians or an international kind of coalition of some kind, those things will put you in the right frame of mind to do a different kind of thinking than if you were in a sterile environment that didn't hold that kind of meaning for you.
0: I love that. I think that's really beautiful, which leads us right to community community, you mentioned, is such a huge, important thing for our thinking, not just for pleasure or joy, but literally for making our mind function at its top capacity. So can you speak to how we can optimize our human interactions to expand and enhance our thinking?
1: We live in such an individualistic culture. And again, we kind of have this idea, this neurocentric idea that ideas come from individual brains when really If you look at any good idea, it was the product of social interactions and, as you say, community interactions. So then the question becomes, how do we intentionally structure our interactions with people in order to extend our minds? And in my book, I talk about there's experts, there's the ways that we learn from masters and teachers, there's peers, so the kinds of interactions we have with people who are at our own level. And then there's thinking with groups, which takes on its own kind of quality when a group of people becomes not just an assemblage of individuals, but actually starts thinking and acting as an entity. And so I talk in the book about ways to create that feeling of groupiness. And I think we've all had a sense of groupiness, a sense that like, wow, we're all kind of on the same page and firing at the same time. And we've also had the opposite feeling of a group that never kind of coheres or comes together. So again, we're not necessarily used to thinking in terms of thinking with other people, because we have this very individualistic culture that says individual geniuses or individual creators are the ones who generate the ideas that make our world run.
0: What are some of the ways that we can shift our thinking when we are with other people to get away from that idea that individuals are all that matters.
1: One concept I really love is transactive memory, which refers to the fact that no one person can know everything, especially in our world where knowledge is so specialized these days. But if you know who knows the information that you're looking for, then you've effectively expanded your own memory in a sense, like you've sort of reached out and grabbed their expertise and made it your own because you know who to go to. When we're working in a group, it's really important to have an accurate and an updated sense of what everybody in the group knows, because then you've multiplied the group's access to information by however many people are in the group. And research has shown that groups in healthcare, like doctors who are working together, when they have a very robust transactive memory system, meaning that they all know exactly what the others' areas of expertise are patients actually do better because nothing's falling through the cracks. The people who are the best suited to do a certain task get pulled into that task because everyone knows what their area of expertise is. So again, we're getting away from the idea that one person has to know or be able to do everything. And instead, what's important to know is how to access the resources that are outside of your brain.
0: My husband and I joke about that all the time because I'm like, oh, you've specialized in these things, so I don't need to know about them anymore. And I've specialized in these things and you can access that when you need to. And I've always been like, does that mean we're codependent? Like, is that a bad thing? But you're saying, no, it's science supported.
1: It is absolutely science supported. And you might find it interesting to know that the psychologist who came up with the idea of transactive memory, Daniel Wagner It actually emerged first out of his experience of getting married. He got married to another psychologist. So you can imagine they probably talked about this stuff at home, but they started noticing like Dan was in charge of the car stuff while Tony, his wife, remembered the family birthdays or whatever, not to make it like a total traditional gender breakdown, but each person in the partnership took control or like was in charge of a certain area. And that was actually a very efficient way of dividing up the mental labor.
0: Thank you for the permission, giving. I really appreciate it. I'm curious to know out of all of these different studies and research you've conducted and little tips and tricks and techniques that you've learned, what has been the most sticky in your own life? Like what do you find yourself going to on a day to day or week to week basis?
1: There's one that we haven't really talked about yet, which is this idea of cognitive offloading. And that is the idea that we have, again, the brain-centric, kind of neurocentric society that we live in fetishizes the brain. And really, we celebrate people who do things in their heads, like memory champions who can remember things without writing them down, or chess grandmasters who can plan out many games all inside their head. And we valorize that. But in fact, the most efficient and most effective way to deal with information and ideas is often to get it out of our heads and onto physical space, whether that's a big whiteboard or a multi-monitor setup so that you have multiple screens, or my own favorite, and this is how it shows up in my own life. I'm a profligate Post-it note user, and I particularly like Post-it notes because you get the benefit not only of cognitive offloading in the sense of I'm getting all the information, all those ideas out of my head, but then we can actually manipulate those ideas as if they're physical objects, which again is the kind of thing that our brains really evolved to do and move them around and use the embodied resources of being able to physically navigate what is basically a landscape of ideas on the wall in a way that improves our thinking so much more than if it were all just locked up in our head and sort of inert there without the ability to, first of all, get that sort of distance from our ideas, but also that ability to move and change and dynamically work with all those ideas. So I always tell people and I tell my own kids and I tell my students when I teach that you want to get your ideas out of your head and don't try to do it all in your head.
0: Yeah, I use Notion obsessively, which I don't get the embodied moving stuff around, but I do think there's so much mental energy also wasted on, oh, I'll remember that later, I'll remember that later, and getting rid of that mental waste frees up so much extra mental space.
1: Yeah, I think we can think of our devices that way too, that we want to offload to our devices as much to a platform like Notion. As much as possible, the more mundane or more sort of memory based kind of tasks and that frees up our human intelligence to do the higher level cognitive activities like imagining and planning and creatively putting things together because for example the way we delegate remembering phone numbers to our devices you know that's one fewer thing that we have to remember we have to entrust to our brains and We want to be thinking in terms of freeing up our brains to do what only human brains can do.
0: Is there any downside of that? Like, I know my dad often laments that we don't know how to use maps anymore, and if my Google Maps went away, I wouldn't be able to get anywhere, and he would be able to get there. Is there a negative side to that, or is it all positive?
1: I would say it's something that we want to be conscious of and intentional about because it is possible for our native abilities to atrophy when we don't use them all the time. And that's been shown with navigational abilities specifically. So your dad is actually incorrect there. But I also see that idea turning up. Sometimes you'll hear people in education say like, well, kids don't need to learn facts anymore, because they can just always Google it. But that's really a misconception. We actually have to have quite a lot of content knowledge committed to memory before we can an expert or close to an expert in any kind of domain, like I always compare it to if you were able to look up the meaning of a foreign language word, one word at a time, if you were able to Google the French word for computer, and string together a bunch of those words into a sentence, does that mean that you're fluent in French? No, actually, you have to have a whole bunch of vocabulary words, plus the structures of the grammar committed to memory in order to be fluent in a language. And the same is true for being an expert in any kind of domain.
0: So it's a little bit nuanced. It's like you want to offload so you can do these higher processing, but you also need to keep a certain amount of stuff in your brain to be able to formulate those higher level, higher processing thoughts.
1: That is true. And that's why I think The concept of the extended mind is useful because it allows us to think really intentionally about these things. Otherwise, we're doing all of this. We extend our minds all the time, but we tend to do it haphazardly and without a lot of conscious planning or thought. Whereas if we're aware of the fact that we bring in external resources into our thinking, then we can be really thoughtful about how we do it and make sure that we're doing it as well as we can.
0: What do you do when you're facing a problem or a challenge that you're trying to tackle in your workday?
1: I'm really persuaded by the research on incubation and anyone who owns a home or maintains a domestic space knows this. There's like a never ending list of chores and duties around the house. And I often think of it as like doing double duty. I'll confront a difficult problem. I won't know exactly how to solve it. And This is an interesting research insight that I just recently came across. Be very explicit about posing the question to yourself. Say it to yourself or ask it as a question, pose it to yourself. How can I make this introduction flow into the first chapter or whatever it is that I'm working on? Set the problem to yourself in very clear and explicit terms. And then go wash the dishes or do the laundry. Or as I say, there's always something to be done in that realm. And I always feel like, I'm killing two birds with one stone here because I'm getting stuff done. But I also know that as I do this, my non-conscious mind is working away on that problem. And more often than not, I really am able to return to my writing work with some fresh kind of insight that I would not have gotten if I just stayed at my computer, like sort of pushing through and not letting up. That's actually not the best way to treat our brains.
0: Can you leave us with just one homework assignment, something that we can all start doing the second we stop listening to this podcast to extend our minds?
1: One of my favorite concepts from the extended mind literature, and again, this is from the philosopher Andy Clark, he talks about how we are intrinsically loopy creatures, that humans are loopy in the sense that our unique biological intelligence benefits from creating loops whereby we take ideas and information out of our heads and loop it through, maybe through our bodies, through gesture and movement, or maybe through the environment when we go outside, or maybe through the mind of another person. And we all know how our thoughts and ideas can be enriched by talking to another person, or even by printing it out and seeing it. I always print out like what I'm working on, and somehow it looks different When it's on paper than when it's on screen. And that doesn't make any sense from the brain as computer metaphor point of view, but it's just how our quirky, idiosyncratic human intelligence works. So I would just suggest to listeners think about creating those loops whenever you can, getting ideas and information out of your head and looping it through some other medium. And you'll find that it returns to you in a form that is enriched and augmented in some way that you might not be able to predict, but that you can only find out from sort of taking advantage of the outside world.
0: Can you give one more example of that? You said printing out something that you were looking at on a screen. Can you give a few more like loop examples that we could utilize?
1: One way of creating a cognitive loop that I really love and I think is really underused is creating a three-dimensional model of the problem that we're trying to solve. And architects and designers know this, that there's something about creating a model that exists in space that changes the way we can think about it, not only because we're cognitively offloading, we're getting out of our head, but then we can draw on those embodied resources, we can go in close and look at it in fine detail, we can step back, we can move around it. We think of thinking outside the brain as almost like a childish thing. Like we're okay with kindergartners using manipulatives or rods and blocks to count with, but you really should set those aside as you get older and do that all in your head. When really we adults should be taking a page from the kindergartners and working with the physical stuff of the world a lot more often than we do. And we're kind of drowning in symbols and images when really Our brains evolved to move our bodies through space, navigate through three-dimensional landscapes, and manipulate material objects. And the more we can make our knowledge work resemble those kinds of hands-on embodied activities, the better we'll be able to think.
0: I love that. Well, can you tell us a little bit in your own words about your beautiful book, any other work that you're doing that you want to highlight, anywhere people can find you on the internet?
1: I have a website, AnnieMurphyPaul.com. I'm active on Twitter, although we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> my handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. I'll just say one more thing, Liz, which is that a lot of people have told me that they have enjoyed listening to my book and the audio book for whatever reason is far outselling the paperback and the hardback. And a lot of people have said to me, I actually kind of Lived the message of your book by listening to your book while taking a walk outside. Like I've heard that from so many people. So, a uh, kind of plug for the whole extended mind idea. I think a lot of us have discovered audiobooks and podcasts over the past few years. And I think it's a really wonderful way to get a whole lot of different kinds of stimulation going that enrich whatever the material is that's going into your ears.
0: That's a great idea. I love the idea of embodying all of the practices in your book by going for a little walk with it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This was absolutely wonderful. I'm such a fan, and I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you, Liz. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Wow. That was a lot of actionable information. I am so curious to hear what you're going to try. I'm literally already gesturing so much more since interviewing Annie. Obviously, it's yet another reason to prioritize getting outside and getting movement. And I love the stuff about setting up your environment. It was just so much interesting research. If you are new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including one that is packed to the brim with sleep tips and tricks and a very special series about the health effects of alcohol that I am so excited to share. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe so you do not miss out on anything. Oh, and head to healthycombo.co to get your hands on our three new conversations. Starting games, brawn cheer together, working together, and we're all in this together plus the original Healthier Together deck. They're all at healthycombo.co. Okay, I love you. And I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. My favorite health hacks are the ones that have the biggest payoffs for the smallest amounts of effort. And this is such a good one. When you are drinking your tea or coffee in the morning, just add one packet or scoop of Great Lakes Wellness collagen peptides. I definitely was a bit of a collagen skeptic until I had dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bowe on the podcast. You can scroll back to her Ask the Doctor episode. She said it is not a myth. There is research to support how great collagen is for your skin. And then, of course, I did my own deep dive, and I was so impressed with the known benefits for things like your skin, your hair, and your joint health. Studies show that collagen can help improve your skin's hydration, which is something that I am especially looking for during this time of year when everything just feels a little bit drier. Zach likes the marine collagen, and then I like the grass-fed beef collagen, but both are incredibly well-sourced and certified by third parties, which is the number one thing that I look for. And since I've started incorporating collagen into my everyday routine, I have noticed strong and healthy nails, and my hair feels thicker, and fuller, which we love, and Zach's knees are feeling so good despite all of the time that he is spending running. One of my favorite things about the Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides is that I cannot taste them at all, and they dissolve so well in hot and cold beverages. Not all collagen can dissolve in cold beverages, and some days you just want an iced tea. To try out Great Lakes Wellness collagen packets or their bigger tabs, use code Liz Moody for 25% off. Yes, 25% off. That is a huge discount off of your first purchase at greatlakeswellness.com. That is Liz Moody for 25% off at greatlakeswellness.com.